It is tempting to think that more leadership or some kind of improved leadership will help us and our organizations work better. But what if leadership was part of the problem instead of the solution? What if our understanding of it only maintained principles of the past, which no longer serve us well? That's what I explore in my book, Dare to Unlead, and today in this podcast. Join me and my guest, a person quoted in the book or in tune with its values, to learn from them what it takes to unlead and succeed together. Welcome to the Dare to Unlead podcast, episode 10. The book Dare to Unlead has 11 chapters, so you can guess we're approaching the end of this series, or rather, its culmination. With brilliant, diverse, and thought-provoking guests, many of whom have directly inspired the book, we have discussed in earlier episodes about the crisis of change and leadership in our corporate systems and the effects of greater freedom and more intense connections at work. With Jennifer Sertle in episode 9, we open the last part of this series revolving around the idea of chosen togetherness. How do we work better together? How can multiple networks of people, supported by technology, stick together instead of spreading out and achieve collective performance without coercion and with the least possible bureaucratic oversight? I've been curious about this question since my very first experiment with a worker movement for improvement, something radically different from what was usually done in that organization. From the classical top-down, linear project management approach, we shifted to a much more dynamic, empowered, creative one. And in my quest to understand this better, I was fortunate to cross paths with Helen Bevan. Helen has been for 25 years a change leader in the English National Health Service, the second largest healthcare system in the world. Thinkers50 presents Helen Bevan as a leader of large-scale change and improvement activist. The Royal Society of Arts explains that Helen has been at the forefront of many NHS improvement initiatives that have made a difference for thousands of patients ever since. In 2012, Helen initiated NHS Change Day in partnership with a group of young clinical and managerial leaders. Helen also conceived the School for Health and Care Radicals, later renamed the School for Change Agents. Helen Bevan is acknowledged globally for her expertise in large-scale change and ability to translate it into practical action and deliver outcomes. She provides advice, guidance, and training on transformational change to leaders of health and care systems across the world. I have learned a lot from Helen through our online and in-person interactions. Our backgrounds were different, but the innovations she and her team were piloting around human engagement inspired me greatly. This is why you'll find Helen's work referenced several times in Dare to Unlead and also Helen's name among the acknowledgements. Helen, I am so glad you are here. Welcome. Thank you, Celine, and I'm really looking forward to our discussion. Awesome. So how are you, Helen? And how is Rolf? Oh, I'm, um, I'm very good. And um, yeah, just for anybody that, uh, that wants to know, Rolf is my cat. And uh, I live very near to Warwick University. And, uh, and my cat likes to go and visit the university. So I, I set him up an account on social media because like, people kept saying, why is a cat 
on uh, on campus. And now across all his social media channels, he has about 70,000 followers. Do you know, he has his own Wikipedia page. I'm not even on Wikipedia. Um, but no, he's very well. <laughs> That's amazing. So let me get to the question I ask all my guests on this podcast. Helen, what is your art? the professional practice that is unique to you or that you perform in a unique way? So, Celine, what do I think my art is? Um, I think it's, um, it's being in a space between thinking, research, curiosity and activism and um, practice. So, so you mentioned before Thinkers 50 and a couple of years ago I was on the Thinkers 50 radar list of people to look out for and, and how they described me there, which I think sums up my art very well, is an ability to seek out and blend new ideas on change with a deep understanding of implementing change in complex systems. So, you know, I, I love new knowledge, you know, finding out new things, but I'm only interested in it from the point of view of practice and, and being able to to make a difference. So, you know, living in that special space, you know, having worked in that special space for, for decades now, I think, um, yeah, that's how I describe my art. Mm. And what led you to it? I guess, you know, part of it is about being a, a curious person, always wanting to find things out, you know, to see what other what other people are thinking. And, you know, one of the things I talk about sometimes is the difference between being an expert and an explorer, because it's very easy to to feel like an expert. And, you know, people say, oh, will you come and give a keynote talk or will you come and advise me on my my change project? It feels great when people want you to be an expert. But, you know, the problem sometimes with being an expert is that it closes your mind to other possibilities. Whereas I think, you know, being an explorer means that you always have an open mind and you always want to find new things. And, you know, when you think like that, okay, like an explorer rather than an expert, like doubt creeps in all the time. And, and so, so you start to think, you know, well, do I know or am I doing the right thing? And, and actually that, that, um, that sense of doubt, you know, makes you learn more. So I think what got me to this place is, you know, being somebody who always works with and supports change, always thinking, do I know enough? Are there better ways of doing things? And the doubt, you know, about um, about my own ability or my own practice and constant doubt, I think, drives my own learning and I hope makes me a better change agent. So, yeah, sometimes it's not very comfortable being in that space. And also um, it's relentless. You know, the doubt never goes away. But I think that, you know, in the context of, of what I do, yeah, I think it's quite a good place to be. <laughs> And why did you get interested in change and social movements in the first place? I think, Celine, when any of us, you know, think about why we get interested in the things that we got interested in, I think it comes, you know, or it should come from from a place that is very personal and a place of, in a sense, what happened in your life that that, that led you to to where you got to. And and actually, you know, I think the um, the origins of my interest in um, in change and activism and, and and social movements you know goes back to um, my childhood and um, because you know I came from um, 
fantastic, loving family, but a family that wasn't very well off. And even at a very early age, you know, I had a sense of difference and, um, you know, a sense of some people had a lot and some people didn't. And and also, you know, other other differences in, in society, like between men and women. So, you know, when I went to school in the 1970s in England, I went to a school that was a was a mixed school, girls and boys. And the boys, it was mandatory until the age of 16 that they studied physics. But girls didn't have to study physics. And, you know, it's almost like the school preparing, you know, children for gender stereotype roles. And, you know, it, it, like, it's not fair. And I felt that when I was really young. So, so kind of by the time I got to 18, you know, I was like a full-blown activist. I was a, um, you know, I was a committed feminist. I, you know, I had a sense of, of justice and, you know, rights um, in terms of, you know, right to education, right to health, right to learning, right to a job, you know, and I was, I, yeah, I was a committed activist. And then when I finished my studies, you know, the, the thing that I wanted to be was I wanted to be a public servant. You know, I wanted to do public service. It's, it's like, like who I am in the world. And so um, I got a, a really great like first job in, in, um, in government in England. And, and I thought this is great because, you know, I can do public service and I can help change happen from within the system. But, you know, what I kind of learned, and it didn't take very long, was that when you work within a system, you get to learn what the system is about. And, you know, you want to you want to do a good job and you want people to like you. So you start to conform. So actually, you know, me going and working in my first government job, I became a kind of perpetrator of the status quo. I wasn't challenging the system. I was upholding the system. And kind of, you know, after that, I kind of got to realise that and got much more into into change and activism. And, you know, when I think about me now, like in the later stages of my career, I identify far more like with the 18 year old activist than I do with you know the person I became when I went to work in government. And yeah, I, you know, I have the same kind of drives, you know, the same sense of we need to do things differently. Yeah, we need to unlead. <laughs> I think your 18-year-old self would be proud of uh, who you have become. Wow, I hope so. Um, <laughs> you speak about new power, about agency, about networks, about movements. What are the core elements of your approach and how do you define them? So one of the things, you know, when we're working with change uh, that we have to do is we have to talk about power because we cannot enable change to happen in organizations, in society, unless we focus on power. And, you know, part of the way that I would define power is about, um, you know, the ability to, to get the outcomes that, that we seek. So, you know, one of the models, yeah, that I like to use a lot. Yeah, I do like working with models. You know, um, all models are wrong. Some of them are useful. Uh, one of the models that I would use a lot is the Hyman and Tim's uh, model, which which you just mentioned, you know, when um, talking about old power and new power. If we want to make change happen, we've got to, we've got to um, create the power to do it. And we have to work with both kinds. So, you know, when we talk about old power, that's the, the power of the, the formal system. You know, it's the um, authority that people have in organisations and systems. And, you know, old power, um, we push it down in, in organisations and systems. We 
we tell people that they have to do things because you know it's your role it's your job and an old power you know is is um, it's about structures and processes and uh, accountability and governance um, mechanisms and if we contrast that with new power well new power is the kind of power that we create when a lot of people come together with common purpose and um, to make a difference and a new power is uh it's open. We share it. You know, if we um, if we're building a campaign or a social movement, you know, we build it on on new power. And anybody that 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 shares our goals can can be part of our um, our new power movement. And you know, sometimes people um, get this wrong, and and people misinterpret me as well because you know when they hear me talking about these things, they think I'm saying old power is bad and new power is good. And and actually, what I'm saying is kind of much more nuanced because, you know, we, we have to work with both. We have to, you know, when you work in a formal system and, a, and an organisation, okay, like we have to like massively uh, respect and work with, you know, the formal mechanisms of the of the system. And at the same time, if we wait for, for old power systems to deliver things, we might be waiting forever. So, um, you know, our ability to to work in new power ways, to connect with other people that want the same things that 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 we want and to create the, the, the kind of power that comes from you know, many people organizing and, uh, and coming together. Yeah, we need to work with both. Hmm. And Helen, you've spent many years working with the NHS in England, uh, an institution which is cherished by the British people. What are the main challenges faced by the NHS from a change perspective? So what I'd like to do, Celine, is maybe um, flip the question. And, and maybe I'd like to start the other way around, which is to say, why is it so easy, okay, so rewarding, you know, making change happen in the um, National Health Service in England? So, um, so if I start there and then go on to your question, you know, one great thing about working in, for and with the NHS is that it's so value driven. Whoever we're working with in the system, you know, we, we can find a shared purpose. And like if you just look at what happened during the pandemic and how um, just how incredible the NHS was and how people came together in the NHS so quickly and uh, and so effectively you know, um, to enable change to happen, like driven, you know, absolutely by um, by our common purpose of making a difference. And, and you know, sometimes people say to me, it must be very difficult making, ch you know, helping change to happen or enabling change um, in the NHS. You know, isn't it difficult with all those doctors? And, you know, what I would say is um, actually compared to working in, in and with other sectors, I've never come across a person um, who works in the NHS who I cannot find a point of shared purpose with. You know, it's it's always there. We've always got something that unites us. So in change terms, it gives us a wonderful um, starting point. Having said that, I'd say it's not easy making um, change happen. And a lot of that is because you know, the NHS is a, is a very big system. You know, 1.5 million uh, people work in the system providing care for uh, a population of 54 
million people. So like, how do you change a big system? And there's an absolute paradox, you know, a, a, a tension at, at the heart of the NHS. And, and that is like on the one hand, we have got the responsibility for the health of an entire um, population. And, you know, what we want to do is that we, we look at our goals in kind of population terms. And, you know, we want to give the, the best care we can to everybody within the resource um, that we've, we've got. And, you know, um, you know, sometimes people talk about postcode differences. You know, we would want somebody that lives in Liverpool to get the same quality of care as somebody that lives in, um, you know, that lives in Cornwall. Okay. Somebody that lives in the countryside to get the same quality of care as somebody that lives in, in the inner city. So, you know, we want we want highly standardized care. We don't want we don't want variation and we want to think about things on a very big scale. And we want to see every one of those 54 million people getting care that they feel is highly personalized, you know, like based on what matters to them. So how do we you know, manage um, a health and care system that on the one hand, you know, we, we want to get, get standardised high quality care for everybody and individualised care for each individual. And, you know, we, we see that dilemma um, played out in the way that change happens. And, you know, because we're trying to change a very big system, I think very often the change that we do okay, can feel very top down it can feel imposed on people and it can feel oppressive because, you know, we're trying to change a whole system. So, you know, and what I would say generally in our system, we do too much change for people rather than with people or by people. And, you know, we're always like leaders in our system are always doing change for people. And the change that we're doing for people is really well intentioned. Okay. But, as soon as we don't do change in partnership with people, it takes away so many of the things that you talk about in your book. You know, it takes away our, our sense of autonomy. It takes away our agency. It takes away our fraternity. And on the other hand, in the NHS, we've got far too many kind of small scale changes happening all over the place. And small scale changes are great because the world happens through small scale changes, but they don't get connected up. So a lot of these small changes have got phenomenal promise, okay, but they don't go anywhere. So in a sense, I think, you know, part of what we've got to try and do here is create lots of small scale changes, but in a large scale framework. So in a sense, we need to have the connections, the system, you know, learning systems that connect everybody up and enable, enable everybody, you know, to do their best work. Hmm. So one of the answers to those challenges was the creation of a structure named NHS Horizons. Is that correct? And what is it? Yeah. So I work in a little team in, in the NHS nationally, uh, which is called NHS Horizons. You know, we're, a, we're a, a small group of people who have got a lot of skills okay, around enabling change to happen. And we work with lots of teams, you know, typically teams that are working in areas that are that are very big priorities for change um, in the NHS. And, and we work with people and we support people to do their own change um, rather than doing change for people. 
And you support those people way beyond the NHS, right? Uh, in particular, through the School for Change Agents, which I am a proud graduate of. <laughs> What is it? Yeah, so so the NHS Horizons um, team runs the the School for Change Agents, and um, the School for Change Agents. And actually, you were one of our first alumni, Celine, because you you uh, I think when did you do the School for Change Agents? Like two thousand and fourteen, two thousand and something like that. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. In the very early days, mm-hmm. so yeah, the School for Change Agents is a is a, a virtual school, and you know we talk about agency. And you know what? Do we, what we mean by agency is the uh, ability to to take action, okay, to make happen the change that you um, that you want to make happen. In a sense, it's having agency is in a a, a sense of um, the uh, ability to um, to take action. And you know what we saw was happening in the NHS in England was that lots of people were going on training courses to learn uh, techniques and methods for quality improvement, which are a really good thing. But then you know, people would go back to their organizations and they, they wouldn't have the agency, okay, to to enact the methods you know, they were they were learning. And you know, we talk about a big problem is that that people have competency because they've been on the you know a course, done the training and they've they've learned improvement skills which are which are you know beautiful important skills. But if you haven't got agency, i.e. a sense that you've got the power to actually make the change happen, you can do nothing with those skills. So so the whole idea of the School for Change Agents, so a change agent is somebody who has agency for change. And it was about um, supporting people to take their own power for change. So, you know, we talk about, you know, supporting people to rock the boat, but, but to stay in the boat. Because, you know, when you work in organizations um, and you want things to change, it's very easy to get very passionate and to, you know, run around like an unguarded Exocet missile, creating havoc, saying things have got to change. <laughs> and, 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 you know, often that's not a very good tactic in a big organizational setting. But, you know, if we can, if we can be in a, in a situation where we, um, we've built our own agency, particularly through strong relationships, by, by working in new power ways whilst respecting old power systems, then you know, there's much more likelihood that, um, that we can make things happen. And again, you know, when it, you know, what I would say is like, you know, of course, we want people to be disruptors. You know, we want to disrupt the status quo. You know, we want to disrupt the system. That means that too many of our, our patients get poor care or too many of our patients get care that's, that's, that's unsafe. Of course, we need to disrupt that system. But actually, when you're working in the system, um, probably the most powerful way to disrupt is through connections and relationships because you know it's built on trust and common purpose so yeah it's about supporting people to be the kind of disruptors that enable successful change in big systems mm. and can you give one or two examples of a successful movement or successful movements you've been involved in and and how did they make a difference using this new power approach Yeah, so I'll maybe I'll, I'll pick a couple, Celine. So, um, yeah, the first one was the one that you talked about, which was NHS Change Day. And, uh, and how that happened was in, in 2013, I had a conversation with a couple of 
doctors in training and they were saying, you know, we need to change the NHS. We, uh, you know, we need to transform the NHS. How are we going to do things differently? So we just sat down and we decided to set up this special day, one day a year, when we talked to our colleagues across the NHS and got everybody to take action on that day. And it could be any action that people wanted to take that would make um, a difference for patients or for um, colleagues. And again, you know, the whole idea of this ties in with this idea of agency that, you know, just even the ability to, to make one small change can, can give us kind of confidence and hope and possibility for change. And if we've got lots and lots of people making small changes happen, then they can turn into a, a big change. So we did this in a like a new power way. So like at the beginning, we didn't have any permission or authority. Uh, we decided to just do it. And, uh, and we just worked in a new power way and just got loads of people involved. And then the first year that was pretty amazing, we got 169,000 pledges across the system. And then the next year, the, like the group that were organising it, who, you know, who were mostly kind of trainees and, and students, they said, oh, let's go for a goal of half a million. And I'm thinking, no, we don't want to do that. Because what tends to happen in the NHS is that if you set a goal, people see it as a performance target you know it's our it's our culture you know our culture has a lot of performance targets in it so if we say our goal is half a million and we don't get half a million people will say it's failed so I wasn't very keen but the other kind of members of the group wanted to do it and so we ended up with way over half a million pledges you know and um, and the great thing about NHS Change Day as a movement it spread to 21 other countries and territories globally and it's still going you know, and um, there's a group now called the Fab Academy, which is a wonderful group that works, you know, to create, you know, to support people to create change across the system and share really good practice. And and now it's called Fab Change Day, but it still happens every year. Can I maybe give you another example as well? Oh, of course. Where? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, one of the um, projects that I'm I'm most proud of, actually, that I was part of was about people living with dementia who were being given antipsychotic drugs inappropriately. So when we started that project, there were uh, 189,000 people in England living with dementia that were being given antipsychotic drugs. And probably about 30, 35,000 of those people should have been getting those drugs. So the other 150 plus thousand shouldn't have been getting those drugs. And, and why it was happening is because very often people who are living with dementia, you know, have psychological and behavioral issues and are given this very, very strong drug to kind of quieten them and calm them. But the thing about these drugs is that the guidance was that, that people should only be given these drugs for a very short period of time. And, and then only as a kind of last resort. And what was happening is that, well, people were being on the, going on these drugs for life and people were given, being given them much more often than they should. So I worked with the Horizons team. We worked with the National Clinical Director for Dementia and we set up this project like a social movement. So we said, who do we need to get involved in this? And we worked out all the kind of key groups of people who can make a difference. So, for instance, you know, um, family physicians, psychiatrists, people that lead nursing homes, pharmacists, people living with dementia and their family and their advocates. So we worked out all the different groups. And then we said, in true social movement fashion, what's our ask? So we created an ask for each group and ran this project like a um, like a social movement. And, you know, it was amazing. The National Clinical Director for Dementia 
you know, he um, he kept us up to date with the data afterwards. And within three years, we were prescribing the prescribing rate for people um, living with uh, dementia of these drugs had gone down 51 percent. Do you know, it would never have happened if we'd have done it the other way around, which is, you know, mm-hmm. a compliance approach, like saying to doctors, you know, do not prescribe this. Mm-hmm. Um, when we actually run it like a social movement, like, you know, this is our cause and we need to put right something that's really wrong. And this is the specific thing we're asking you to do. You know, when it comes from a place of commitment, not a place of compliance, it's so much more powerful. And, you know, I think so much of a better way of doing things. Mm. That's really amazing. Have you been involved in other social movements or corporate movements which did not work that well? And if uh, if so, why? So a good example of this would be that you know because the work we did on um, on dementia and antipsychotic drugs was was so successful, um, one of the um, other teams nationally said, "Can you can you come and help us apply the same approach to our project?" And this was about shared decision making for people with end stage kidney disease and what that means is that people with end stage kidney um, disease means basically their kidneys aren't functioning well anymore so so they need dialysis but you know there's lots of different kinds of dialysis and some people have to go to hospital um, three times a week for dialysis and other people get home dialysis okay what the data showed us is that the main reason or the, um, the, or the main difference between whether people got home dialysis or they had to come into hospital for dialysis was the, the clinical preference of the doctor, okay? And so, you know, the idea was to run this social movement so that um, every patient who needed to go into dialysis could make their own choice. But you know what? And we tried to use exactly the same kind of social movement-based approach, and it didn't work. It failed. And I think the main reason it failed is because um, because of lack of shared purpose, because, you know, that the situation was when we were working with, you know, the project with um, people living with dementia, like nobody okay, could disagree that it was a bad thing that people living with dementia were being, being given antipsychotic drugs inappropriately. Like whoever you were in the system, OK, you couldn't disagree that it was something that, that we shouldn't be doing. So in a sense, like, like there was no disagreement. Whoever you were, whatever you are in the system, everybody agreed that it was a bad thing. But, you know, when it came to the dialysis project, like many, many of the doctors didn't agree with home dialysis, okay? So um, they just didn't agree with it. And they didn't agree with it as a, a, a clinical practice. And the voice of the doctors that did agree with it wasn't strong enough, I think, to change that. So if you haven't got, again, with a kind of social movement type approach, if you haven't got a a cause um, or a mission that everybody believes in and that that kind of makes sense and drives your activism, it's it's just never going to work. That's really interesting. Yeah. And by the way, is there anything in your change work that you do differently now as compared to 10 or 15 years ago? Many, many things. Mm. Just because, you know, I'm learning all the time, learning, you know, from other people all the time. So, like, you know, certainly my practice changes constantly. And and there's certain things that, that don't change, like, you know, the sense that you have to get people involved right at the beginning of a project and you have to co-produce with people at the, at the front line. 
people that use services, patients and families. So old power, new power, um, you know, all those things are pretty consistent. Things where I'm maybe my practice changed. Okay, One thing I'd say is around building a sense of belonging. And I've learned a lot about belongingness in a sense and how important it is to change. And again, I think it really fits in with a lot of your themes, Celine, around you know, relatedness and how important it is. So if we're setting up a new project team or a new change group, we need to work really hard at the beginning of that to create a sense of belonging. Because, you know, if you've got three or four patients who are coming to be representatives, you know, in a you know a change initiative that's got lots of doctors in it, often, you know, the people that are the, the patients will feel on the outside. So unless we we take a lot of action right at the beginning, you know, to make sure that everybody feels, yes, I feel really part of this. I, you know, I really believe with the mission of this and I'm appreciated for the unique and special things that I bring myself and other people and people understand that. Okay. And actually doing that and creating that belongingness and keeping that belongingness. I think it's such a, a key part of change. Another thing I'd say that I understand better now is um, is I understand about much more about systems and how we work as part of a, a bigger system. One of the ideas that I like a lot, again, all models are wrong, some of them are useful, um, is um, the Arbinger Institute in the US. They have models about um, what they call an inward mindset and an outward mindset. And when we have an inward mindset, we're focused on like me, my team, um, our goals, you know, got to fight for my team. And um, when we have an outward mindset, you know, we think differently. We think about the um, the bigger purpose. We think about, you know, what we can do um, collectively. We think about the common resource. And again, you know, like to have an outward mindset, okay, um, it's all about trust and belief and relationships and connections. Working much more, I'd say, thinking about bigger systems and thinking about outward mindsets. Those are a couple of things I'm doing differently. Hmm. And Helen, you're sharing knowledge with the world, uh, reaching millions uh, through social media. What channels do you use and what is your routine or discipline if you have one? Um, so, Celine, I would say what I do do and what I'd like to do, and they're two different things. Okay. So mainly I work through Twitter. I, I love Twitter. I love learning from other people on Twitter. It's such a brilliant, brilliant source of learning. And I think, you know, at least 50% of the changes and improvements in my practice have come via Twitter. So I try and put something on every day, not j just for the sake of it, but I just think it's really good, you know, to have a, a routine. And in a sense, I know who my audience is on Twitter, and I know what people want and what they like. So yeah, I always try and put at least one thing on put one new kind of piece of knowledge um, every day. And I always try and put a visual on because, you know, I think visuals just make it so much nicer. I, I think there is a, um, a few problems with, um, with my limitation to Twitter. The first thing I'd say is, um, is very few people under the age of 35 are using Twitter in that way. So my, my aspiration is to work much more with, um, with Instagram and TikTok and make films. I just haven't got there yet. And, um, and then the other thing I think I need to do is I do need to get more sensible with LinkedIn because I think more and more people are using it now. So, yeah, I have plans and aspirations. I'm just not quite there yet. Mm -hmm. 
All right, and we'll post all links uh, and uh, resources under the the description of this podcast, of course. So we're coming to already at the end of this uh, episode, which is uh, a pity because I could stay with you much, much longer. Uh, my last question will be, uh, Helen, what would you say to someone who hasn't read Dare to Unlead yet, apart from read it? Yeah, I would definitely say read it. And what would I say? I'd say that when in 20 years time, okay, uh, when or 30 years time, when we think around what are the mainstream approaches to leadership, people will cite um, Dare to Unlead. And, you know, at the moment, when you read Dare to Unlead, it feels a bit, oh, it's a bit radical, you know, and it was a bit different. But, you know, the, um, the, the kind of, you know, the principles, the philosophy of Dare to Unlead are where leadership needs to go because again you know going back to the old power new power model even when you're a leader of a a formal system in a world that is becoming um, increasingly complex and um, ambiguous with you know full of paradox you know the formal systems I think they will absolutely still be with us but they don't work quickly enough they're not um, consistent enough so Every leader will need to become, you know, every organizational leader will need to become the kind of leader, you know, that we have a vision of in Dare, in Dare to Unlead, you know, in a sense of um, working through connections and um, relationships, you know, with, um, with, with activism, working from a place of authenticity and trust in, in highly relational ways. So, um, yeah, I would say that Dare to Unlead is, um, is a book two decades before its time. <laughs> and um, Helen, I, thank you so much. I'm very grateful for those kind words. And I agree with you in, in saying that uh, the way you and I work is not revolutionary, it's evolutionary, right? All right. So thank you, Helen, for your presence, your insights, your, the work you do and your inspiration. And it's been a real, real pleasure for me to have you on this podcast. And I wish you all the best and we'll keep following your journey, explorations and adventures. Thank you. Great insights. Thank you all for listening. You'll find more info in Dare to Unlead, the book, and all links in the podcast episode description. And now, what else? Action! To explore further and apply these ideas to your own context, reach out to me at weneedsocial.com. Let's unlead together.